All right, well, as we begin, uh, kiddos, if you are sixth grade and under, and your mom, dad, or guardian has said, we, we want you to go to the back, you can go ahead and do that. Uh, we are going to be in Genesis 1 today. Go ahead and turn your Bible there, Genesis 1. And if you're new with us, just in case you don't know what's happening, given the nature of some of the things we'll be talking about today, we wanted to make it available uh, for mom and dad uh, to give the option to have uh, your kids elementary age and younger out of the service, if you'd like. Um, if not, that is, that's up to you. And so uh, we're going to be in Genesis 1, 26 uh, through 27 today. I want to begin this way. I was thinking about a conversation that I had had with uh, Pastor Dick Nickel. Some of you might know who this is. He was the former pastor at uh, my wife's uh, home church uh, at Grace Bible in Gettysburg. And I called Pastor Dick up uh, about this time last year. It's already been almost in a few months, two years since I came and candidated and preached in, uh, and preached in view of a call to uh, be your pastor here at Bethesda. And I called up Pastor Dick and I said, Sir, tell me about these South Dakotans. Uh, tell me about, I'm about to switch from culture, California, to South Dakota. It's going to be a switch. Tell me what I need to know. I know my wife is a South Dakotan. She's going to be my, my guide through all of this. But tell me what I should expect for this weekend. And we talked about it. But one of the things that, that uh, Pastor Nickel pointed out to me just really stood out. And he talked about um, the effect of culture from the coasts in our country and how it's like it's on a delay and how it impacts the Midwest. Uh, and so whether it's, you know, broad things, culture, style, lingo, changing norms, whatever. And he says, I, I noticed that in my ministry, there was something like a five-year delay, that if it, what something was going on in California, give it five years, it's going to be right here in South Dakota. So th that's, that's how he sought to be somewhat prophetic. And when he pointed this out to me, I immediately recognized it because back in 2011, when I first met my would-be in-laws, or soon-to-be in-laws, John and Jill, and Justine's brothers, what struck out to me was the way that they were using lingo like legit and things like that, that I was like, yeah, we did that in 2007, and yet you're doing that now. And I noticed that they were wearing the kind of clothing that they were wearing. It was just like I was in a little bit of a time warp. And so I take a note of... of of these kinds of things. And, and I also took note of when I left California, what things I saw there, the way guys were dressing and how it might come here. Guys wearing the fade on the side, the messy top, tube socks with slide sandals, uh, shorts that show too much thigh, all of that. And I'm just, I'm just waiting for that to, to make its way here. And it already has in certain ways. Um, but there was something that I told Pastor Dick in response. I said, I think what you're saying is true. For your ministry, I wonder if, as time has gone on, things have changed, in particularly because of technology, in particularly because of our phone. What social media does is it connects us all throughout the country in a way that we can have everybody's opinion all at once, whenever we want. It just takes a click or just takes a swipe. We can all have it faster, at a faster rate than ever before. And so what was on the coast that might have taken time to get here it's really here, that, that range is, is, is shortened dramatically, I, I would believe. And so, um, this is true not just for style, but also for belief systems. And so, the influence of social media and other means of communication gives us information quickly. That's the first observation from our conversation that we had about the difference between my ministry and his. second observation uh, that I took away from that as I've come here is that we should be careful to not be naive and think that we are in a bubble here in Huron. Um, I, I've noticed that there are, there's obviously many of us who are native to Huron. There's others like me and in my family were, were transplants that have come here. Uh, we came here because uh, of God had called us to ministry here. Uh, a secondary reason would be because it's been a blessing to be closer to family in a way that we've never had in our marriage. Um, and as I've asked some of you, there's probably been about 20 people I've come in contact with since moving here who came from the coast or came elsewhere and then made their way here. And when I've asked 
some of you, um, why you came, there's significant factors like work, this, that, or the other, but there's another thing that comes up. What is it? Politics, right? That's the other one, politics. I hated the politics where I was at. Uh, that place was two X, Y, and Z. Uh, you see the liberal versus conservative mindset. And so the desire was to move to a more culturally and politically conservative state. This is a red state by comparison to the blue state that I was living in before. And so whether you've moved here recently, you've been here for a long time, I think we can fall into the trap of thinking that because of our geography, where we are, that we are in a bubble insulated from maybe the world out there and the challenges that it brings. And I would say I wouldn't be so sure about that. Um, I think that mindset is really an illusion, uh, particularly if you're thinking that you can insulate yourself from a secular understanding of the world's understanding concerning questions on sexuality. All it takes to break this illusion is to go into the Huron Public Library during Banned Books Week and see a table of books, many geared towards youth, with explicit content that'll make your jaw drop. All it takes is realizing that though you may not have an awareness or care concerning questions around gender identity, you might be shocked to learn. It might, it might get you really when you have a family member, friend, a cousin, daughter or son, child, grandchild who's in a totally different place than you. All it takes to break this illusion is to realize that statistically, right here in our midst, there are those of you who are dealing with your own questions surrounding gender identity, sexuality, all of that, and nobody else knows about it. And for the rest of us who just heard me say that, you would go, no, surely not, not at Bethesda Church. Yes, we live on this side of the fall, and so we all deal with our stuff. And so that person is here because they are hoping that the church has a message of hope and clarity. And so what I'm saying to us is that let's not be naive to think that you and I don't have to enter the fray when it comes to questions, questions around gender and identity and sexual identity. If it's not you, it's those around you. And so I think another thing that we must remind ourselves of is this world is not our home. We are citizens of a greater kingdom. Once you accept that fact, you can live in the here and now without the anxiousness of the world coming to get you or something like that. You can live with freedom to know that God has placed you to be here as a light in the midst of darkness. And so we're living in a day where there are fast evolving cultural trends. I mentioned this a little bit last week. Um, there's new terminology that's out there in, in our culture. Uh, terminology talking about like the sex you were assigned at birth. A few years ago, that would just sound so foreign to us. Sex assigned at birth. You can hear the mindset that's behind that. Uh, questions, we brought this one up. How do you identify? How do you self-identify? Or uh, what are your prefer preferred pronouns? You might not have been asked this yet, but you might eventually have to fill this out in some form if you haven't already. You know that these questions are being asked. There's been significant cultural moments as well. One that comes to mind is I think of uh, the Supreme Court uh, Justice uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson uh, when she was in her confirmation hearing, I think it was just last year, might have been the year before, and she was asked the basic question, what is a woman? And if you know what I'm talking about, you know how she responded. What is a woman? And she responded by saying, I can't define that. I can't, not in this context, I'm not a biologist. So we're seeing also how a significant flashpoint in the media is uh, males playing, biological males playing women's sports. That's another thing that is right there. So we're being bombarded with this stuff. It's right there in front of our face. What do we do with it? For myself, I didn't have to answer any question, anything having to do with this stuff until I was 23, and that was in 2015. What happened in 2015? What significant cultural moment happened? That's when Caitlyn Jenner, or Bruce Jenner, became Caitlyn Jenner. And so I remember hearing about that and going, that's so fringe in society. And nine years later, that is absolutely not the case. How much has changed? And so for our youth, 
if they're on TikTok, social, if they're on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, or whatever, or if they have friends who are, uh, they're not learning about these things at age 23, they're learning about them at 13, 10, and younger. And if you don't think they are, you might be surprised. And so in a world where younger people are walking away from the church because they are saying it has no bearing on their life, that it is irrelevant, this is a great moment for you and I as the church to stand in the gap and say, what does the church have to say, church have to say in this moment? And I believe that for this most present moment, we need to turn to an ancient text, the Word of God, who is the most, gives us the most relevant Word of all. And so my hope today is that as a result of encountering God's word, you and I would be more compassionate people. And we would be people who also stand firmly on the truth of God's word. We must start with the truth. And so let's look together at Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Last week, if you were with us, we were in the six days of creation. We're on day six here. God has created he has created the heavens and the earth, everything that, that goes on earth. He has created the animals just before on day six. And now we're in verse 26. The creator, the supreme creator, who gets to decide because he is the creator how his creation should act. And so here's what we get. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the, birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. As we begin, I want to tell you just about a disclaimer up front. Um, much of what I will say this morning has been informed on some resources that I'm heavily leaning on, and I don't want to quote them every few seconds. Just know that 95% of this is not original to Aaron. It's Bible and some of these sources that I'm giving to you. Go ahead and put those up on the screen. I want you to be aware of them. Um, the first one, there's a book called Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. We have it in the library, and it talks about how, as Christians, our body, how God has created us, should be that which gives us direction and how we should understand sexuality. It talks about philosophical underpinnings. If you want to dive into the deep end, this is the book to go to. Uh, another book I read within the last week called To Be a Woman by Katie McCoy talks specifically about gender dysphoria, which we're going to talk about right here in a moment, um, and, and how it relates to women. And so uh, I would say both men and women should read this book. Uh, the last one is this little primer right here, and it's, does God care about gender identity? We've got several copies that are right outside in the Welcome Center. We've got more that are coming next week. If you don't get a copy, get this. Uh, we're trying to give you resources to help, and, and we believe that this would help. And so, this week we're going to address gender identity. Next week we're going to talk about God's view of marriage in Genesis 2. At the end of next week's service, we'll have a time for Q&A. So if you have questions, keep those today, and I think it'll be good for us to dialogue with one another. It's good to see where we're at on this, so don't want this to just, just be one way. And so let me pray for us, and, and we'll get right in. Lord, we have been saying over the last three weeks that you are our creator, and that is good news. Lord, I first pray that you would show us this morning how you being our creator of our bodies is something that we need to not take for granted and how that is going to cut through so much confusion that this world has. That we are to serve you because of how you have made us. Lord, I pray now in this moment for those of us in this room who might have a little bit of tension, a little bit of anxiety because of the subject material we're talking about. Lord, I pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ that gives grace to us, Lord, I pray that that would also cut through. Lord, let us speak the truth in love and let us experience your grace that comes from him who brings transformation. Amen. 
So I want, to make four, I want to take four moves this morning. The first thing I want to do is I want to show you where our culture and where our world is on the question of gender identity. The second thing is we're going to address that same question, how does the Bible answer this? Third, look at the example of Jesus Christ and how you and I should follow his example and respond. And so the culture's approach, Genesis 1, Christ and his example, our response. Some terms. Um, Sam Ferguson, this, this work right here, said that up until recently, um, these terms are important for us to know, so, you, so we know that we're all talking about the same thing. The term gender was used interchangeably with sex to refer to the biological reality that humans are born as either male or female. So when you spoke of a man, you were talking about a male. When you spoke about a woman, you were talking about a female. That, that has been kind of common knowledge up until recently. And so if you experience a, a disconnect between your maleness and your manness or your femaleness and your womanness, use that word like that, um, a discomfort between biological sex and psychological sense of gender, you had what was called gender dysphoria, and that was something to be treated, gender dysphoria. And yet today, gender has been, become con- disconnected from our biology, so that's no longer grounded in biology, but it's grounded in self-understanding. Uh, again, according to Ferguson, the term is now used, that is the term as now used refers exclusively to the psychological, social, and cultural aspects of being male or female. Get that psychological, social, culture. There's another foundation that we're trying to find for what a woman is or a man is, and it's not the body. And so we have a separation that comes in here. And so when we think of LGBTQ, and there's more that goes after that um, in today's world, we're talking about the T here, that someone who identifies as transgender is someone whose gender identity doesn't align with that person's biological sex. By the way, this is going to sound a little bit like lecture, and at a certain point it'll turn into sermon You'll see, okay? Let's keep going. So someone who says, I'm a girl in a boy's body or I'm a boy in a girl's body. That's who we're talking about, with someone who's transgender. And as I've been reading, as I've been researching and learning, learning, learning what I can so that I would be of, of, of at least some use to you as we navigate these waters together, something that has struck me concerning gender dysphoria is the rapid changes, changes that are taking place over the last 10, 15 years. Let me show you what I mean. Historically, Gender dysphoria was something that was experienced by a small population of, that impacted boys and men. But in recent years, it has radically shifted to impacting young women, women, females. In 2007, the U.S. only had one gender clinic for adolescents. Today, it has 50. In the U.K., referrals jumped from 138 cases. That's all there was. 2010, 138 cases dealing with gender dysphoria. And in 2019 and 2020, it has raised to 27,000. So dramatic shift from just 10 years. In the same time period, what has continued uh, along the vein of what we're talking about here, the average age of referrals is dramatically decreasing. And so it's not just 16-year-olds. It's, it's, we're down to single digits here. Uh, Lisa Littman from Brown University did a study of 250 um, responses, uh, parents with youth uh, that were young, youth or young adult children, and she studied what we call ROGD, or rapid onset gender dysphoria, where someone who would be normal one moment, six weeks later, they're asking for a sex change. And what they found, what she found was that in 80% of the cases, it was females that she was dealing with. And so what is also significant is that a large number of these, these, these people that we're talking about are white middle-class girls. And the reason that Katie McCoy talks about why that might be is because of what we call intersectionality. If you ever heard this term before, intersectionality in our culture right now is talking about um, if you are a minority in certain aspects, the more uh, minority things you can put on top of each other, the more oppressed you are. 
And so what Katie McCoy talks about in her book, To Be a Woman, she says that, well, for the white middle class girl, she's looking at those around her and going, I don't have any sense of being oppressed. If I switch my gender, then maybe I can have, maybe I can identify with certain minority groups and represent an oppressed segment of society. And so what do you see when, when gals are coming out this way is that there's such affirmation because, okay, now you have that line of intersectionality in that way. And what, at the same time, Lisa Littman pointed out was that in the study of these 250 uh, young adults um, and youth is that there were so many factors that were impacting them. This is what we don't talk about. The influence that all three of these things existed in, in a significant portion of the study that those who wanted to turn to being transgender over just a short period of time, it was the influence of their friend group, a friend who was transgender influence in them. She says, we can't forget about the environment that might include things going on with your family, a coping mechanism to deal with other issues, a divorce had just happened a few weeks prior. And so there was a response in this way, for example. An increased, significant increase in media consumption. So those three things. And so what Katie McCoy, in talking about Lisa Littman's study, concludes is that gender dysphoria wasn't actually the issue. Now, we'll just say this right here. Gender dysphoria is a real thing for some people. But I wonder if for many others who are saying they're experiencing gender dysphoria, there's something else that is actually going on, and it's not just a psychological challenge that they are navigating there were underlining factors that hadn't been considered. And so that's, that's a snapshot of where we are in this moment. Here's how the culture is approaching gender identity. It used to, the way of treatment used to be what was called watchful waiting uh, by pro- uh, healthy pro- uh, health professionals that you neither encouraged or, dis- or discouraged uh, a child's stated gender if they were experiencing gender dysphoria but wait to observe and let puberty take its course. You know what you found when puberty took its course? That uh, what, what I found looking at two different uh, sources here, 70% all the way up to 90% resolved themselves. Puberty actually wasn't the problem. It was the answer to dealing with gender dysphoria. It was the solution. And so that's not insignificant. The new methodology, on the other hand, is what we call affirmative therapy for gender dysphoria. It's patient-led. I just want you to think about that. It's patient-led. So the patient decides the form of treatment. It, it validates the inner self over the body. And so self-determination is the name of the game. So if you are a patient who goes in and says, I need this, you are being validated by the healthcare professional that is, that is taking care of you. And by the way, so much of what I have read is how easily accessible the treatment is immediately even after that first visit to the doctor's office. And so the typical sequence of what takes place in this affirmative therapy goes like this. There's really three moves. The first one is uh, someone experiencing gender dysphoria refer to themselves as transgender, the first thing that they would go through, and you might have seen this, would be social changes. Changing your name, changing the pronouns that you use, changing the way that you dress, asking other people to validate you, please call me this, so on and so forth. That would be the social changes. The next step would be, and this is, and this is what we have uh, typically, is the use of hormones, and that would be two things. Puberty blockers on the one hand, and the, on the other hand, sex hormones. Um, I've got a ton of information here, y'all. I'll try to keep this brief. Uh, but what is being said in our society right now by so many medical professionals is that puberty blockers uh, are just there to hit pause, kind of like you're watching Netflix and you hit pause on the TV show and you can pick it back up at any moment. And, and yet, that is not the case. Um, as I've been doing my research, again, Katie McCoy points out that uh, for so many side effects of going through puberty blockers 
lower bone density, delayed growth plate, closure, and a, le and a less development of genital tissue, high blood pressure, weight gain, breast cancer, liver disease, disfiguring acne, brain swelling, permanent vision loss. These are things that, as I've read testimonies, they say they don't talk about this stuff nearly as much. Um, the side effects. And so if you want to bump it up another level after that, you have sex hormones. So for males, that would mean you get estrogen. For females, that means uh, that you would get testosterone. And yet there's an impact there. Oral estrogen given to biological males can cause blood clots, cardiovascular disease, weight gain, elevated bl blood pressure, decreased glucose tolerance, gallbladder disease, breast cancer. For testosterone injections given to biological females, increased rate of heart disease, risk of sleep apnea, insulin resistance. The list just goes on. I just want to point out to you, I haven't heard about this stuff as I'm hearing about the LGBT. TQ, as I heard about LGBTQ ideology and how it's been celebrated in our culture. This stuff isn't being talked about nearly as much, and it needs to be. And so if we have social changes, hormones, hormones that are giving, the last stage is sex surgery. I can't go into detail here. I just feel like it would be inappropriate for this context because the details are so grisly. And it's not appropriate. But let's just say they are called gender confirmation surgeries. To sum it up, we're talking about the amputation of reproductive organs and plastic surgery to reconstruct the organs of the opposite sex. I have seen some of these images, and they're harrowing, harrowing. The question is, doing all this, does it actually work? Does it actually work? Um, Ryan T. Anderson listened to a lecture uh, by him a, a few years ago. In 2019, he gave a lecture. One of the things he pointed out was, this is so high risk, what we just pointed out. And we have such little data to actually see. We don't have decades upon decades upon decades of data to see if this actually works after the fact. We're beginning to get more data because we see what's going on in Northern Europe where these practices have been done longer than what we have in the United States. A 2011 Swedish study found that those who transitioned were ninth, this is after, after the transition, were 19 times more likely to commit suicide. It's afterwards. And this is something that is so high risk for something that is so permanent. I, I mentioned to you that last week I was in Phoenix, if you were here last week, uh, I, I saw a friend of mine, and he talked about how in his context, uh, he is seeing youth students that he can look at them and see how they're dressing, how they're acting. And he goes, I, I can tell that there's something I'm about to have to address here. I'm seeing as I'm walking in the grocery store, I'm seeing different things that I've never seen before. Transgenderism is far more accepted here than where I was back in Dallas or, or whatever. But one of the things that he pointed out to me is he says that the church is likely at some point going to have to set up ministries in the future, for those who become disillusioned with their sex transition and who detransition, they have the scars to prove it. And I just can't help but think, will there be a day at Bethesda Church where we will provide a ministry for those who are detransitioners, who are broken physically and psychologically? What a thought to think about. And so the belief system that underpins all of this is that my inner self just defines my identity, my feelings, not my body, define my gender, and wholeness is found through external change. And so the body is separated from the true self in this view. And yet there's inconsistencies. Let me point out a few of these inconsistencies that have jumped out to me. Have you ever noticed how interesting it is that Let's, let's agree we should care about the environment. I don't want to get into details on that. Let's just say God created the heavens and the earth. You should care about that. Let's just leave it there. Leave that there for now. We know that when you introduce foreign substances into the environment, that is not good. We've talked so much about CO2 pollution. We've talked about trash that is laid on the side of the road. You can think of all different forms um, of how the environment can be polluted by human activity. And we say that's not a good thing. You should let nature run its course. Nature is set up in such a way, it's designed, as Christians we would say, it's designed in such a way where 
we should not impose upon it and let it do what it, what it should do. And yet, when it comes to introducing chemicals and changes into our own natural bodies, we don't see the radical inconsistency. Do you see what I'm saying? The radical inconsistency is that we, say, we should say to the environment, let nature run its course, but we don't have the same high view of the human body. The irony here is that for a materialistic culture that says, and it's materialistic secular culture that says, says, this is all that exists, and there is no thing spiritual. What a low view of the human body so many have. Another inconsistency is this. For a movement that says the body doesn't matter, and my inner self is what really matters, how ironic it is that to validate yourself, you then have to change that human body. Like, if your inner self was all that matters, why do you actually need to transition? Ironically, as well, it produces over-the-top stereotypes. And so um, you'll hear this same kind of mindset talk negatively about the patriarchy, talk negatively about women's roles, things like that. And yet it's so overdone when you're trying to divorce the body from manhood and womanhood, you have to rely on cultural stereotypes. There's just a huge problem with that. Cultural stereotypes change from one culture to another. And so you have a foundation that is, that is just so, you don't have any foundation is a better way to put it. And I would argue strongly that the consequences of this viewpoint hurt ultimately women. I'm about females here, so you can see where I'm coming from on this. It hurts women, and women lose every single time. It hurts children and youth. It has permanent consequences in the name of liberation. So that's what the world offers. And now we must ask, what does the church offer? Well, it offers God's word. Look with me at verse 26. The Bible says this. Let's cut through all of this now. God says when he makes humanity, let us make man in our own image. Note that it doesn't say, let me make man in my image. You would expect him to say that. You would expect the Lord to say that. And yet there's, there's the plural use there. What gives? What is going on? If you're in an Old Testament intro class, and you're talking about this, your Old Testament professor would say there's several different interpretive options. Perhaps um, it's a kingly reference, we, talking about the king, even though there's just one, or uh, perhaps we're talking about a divine address to a heavenly court of angels. Some have said that. Others have said it's an intra-Trinitarian, or it's an inner dialogue uh, between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you remember on our first week, if you were with us, we said that we should read the Bible in a way that Revelation progressively reveals itself. You have so many of the truths that are right here in Genesis 1, but more light is shed on Genesis 1 the more you read further on into the story of the Bible, particularly the New Testament. I believe the problem with the first view that it's kingly is that uh, we're talking about a correspondence with man between God and man, not about God's majesty. That's what's in context. Uh, the, the, sec- the problem with the second view that uh, we have a heavenly court of angels here is that it says, let us make man in our image. And in no sense does the Bible ever communicate that we are made in the image of angels. So the, that seems to be off the table. And so when you look at this and you go, what do I do with Let us make man in our own image. Is this just bad grammar? Uh, I would say that's not true, but it's a tip of the hat because I know my New Testament. That just as we did a few moments ago, that Shelby was baptized in the name, one name, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Singularity and plurality. One God and three persons. That's what I believe this is a nod to. And so we are created in the image of the triune Lord. Put that next slide up. The image of God. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Imago Dei, if you ever read theological texts, um, and that's the Latin phrase there. The image of God. 
I believe there's two things. One, we are God's representatives. You read just a few verses down after verse 27. What you're going to see is that there's an instruction. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And he goes on and talks about the different parts of creation that we are supposed to have dominion, dominion over. Psalm 8, 5 through 6 says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. What makes us different than everything else is that you and I are marked with the image of God and we are made to be his royal representatives on this earth, exercising his dominion through us. And so we have that creation mandate as those who have been created in the image of God to be fruitful and to multiply. Side note, as sexual confusion in our society increases, the birth rate declines. Where sexual sin is rampant, children are seen as an inconvenience. Not so for the Genesis 1 Christian, or the Christian who holds to Genesis 1. The other aspect I think that is true here is as the history of the church, of, uh, of historical theology has talked about, is that there's a distinction between animals and humanity. So we're talking about a will, reason, memory. We're created with the capacity to have a relationship with God, that it makes you different than your dog Rover. That's the key difference right there, is that we are created for a relationship with God. And so that image continues not just for Adam, but if you read further on, Adam has more kids. Yes, he, he has his first two sons, but he has another son named Seth later. And in Genesis 5, we're told that when God created man, he made them in the likeness of God, male and female. Genesis 5 sounds so familiar to this right here. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness and after his image, and he named him Seth. And so the image is given from God to Adam and from Adam to Seth and so on and so forth. And so it's not just Adam who is created in the image of God, and it's all who have come after him, including you and I. It perpetuates. And yet we know that this image is flawed, uh, despite our sin. Uh, the image continues despite our sin, but it is flawed. Whether you are a Christian or not, every single person is created with inerrant, inherent worth. Christian or not, because we have been made in God's likeness, being marked as the pinnacle of God's creation. So that's what it means to be made in the image of God, but look at the next phrase. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. I purposely put up the Hebrew words here because I want to point out something to you. The word man, Adam there, is referring to humanity. He created everything, he created humanity. But notice that he uses two particular words here. The author of Genesis, who I believe is Moses, does. Male and female, zakar and nequiba, observation. This does not mean, this rules out that only males are made in the image of God. I have heard some pastors talk about how men are made in God's image and women, if you get married, then you can, you can help that image along. Not so. There's a distinction between the sexes right here and they are both Adam. They are both humanity. Neither does one half and one half put together make the full image of God. Each on their own are completely equal to each other and bearing God's image. What's fascinating to me is that you have light and darkness, sky and earth. You have land and sea. There's these complements all throughout Genesis 1. And then when you get to this climactic moment right here, you have male and female. That duality continues right here. Genesis 1 gives us a sexual binary, male and female, different, and yet their bodies were designed to correspond to one another, just like the rest of Genesis 1 has, that pattern has gone all the way through. They complement one another. A side note to point out here as well. Notice how when God first talks about creating man in his image, there's no mention of race here. The first thing we are given is sexuality. There is one human race. There's equality from the very beginning. There's no distinction. 
We're all on the same level together. And yet, when you take Genesis 1, and we're going to see Genesis 2 next week, that's part of putting us all together. There's different words that Genesis 2 uses. Man is called Ish, and woman is called Isha. Different words here. Uh, Katie McCoy points out something that's so fascinating. We're told about their sexuality in chapter 1. But when you get to chapter 2, we're told about their, more clearly, their gender. What does it mean to be man? What does it mean to be woman? And it talks about first the man is created, and then out of the man, the woman is created. Ish, and then Isha. And you see, when you put Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 together, manhood and womanhood is grounded in maleness and femaleness. To be who you are is to, have, is to look at your own body. And God says to all, about all of this that it is very good. It's very good. I watched a documentary uh, last year, and it was called What is a Woman by Matt Walsh. Some of you may have seen it. I don't recommend all of us go see it unless you've got, like, a filter. It's a, it's a crude film, and yet it's a helpful window into our culture. So I took the risk and watched it. Uh, Matt Walsh, in this documentary, goes up to activists, psychiatrists, politicians, all different kinds of people, and he interviews them, act, uh, who all hold to this gender ideology that we've been talking about in our world. And he asks them the question, what is a woman? And it's fascinating to see them stumble over themselves in trying to ground it, come up with a definition that isn't just based off some of the things that we talked about aside from the body. Towards the end of the documentary and after unsuccessfully finding anyone who could give a definition of what it means to be a woman, uh, Walsh has a conversation with his wife and he says, honey, what is a woman? And she answers with this quick reply, an adult, human, female. And I'll tell you that when I got to the end of the documentary watching this, I thought to myself, why is it that I feel like that was so underwhelming? Why do I feel like something was missing like right there at the end? It's, it's like you had been showing how everybody else is wrong, you're going to give your moment, and it just it didn't come through the way I thought it would. And I think it has to do with this word, procreation. Verse 28 says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Abigail Favalli, who critiqued Walsh in her documentary, points out that, that we need to consider not just the body parts that make man and woman different, but we need to consider their procreative potential as well. That each sex possesses according to God's order, purpose, and design. You are a woman if, meaning you have a female body, meaning the potential for pregnancy. Note the key word potential there. This does not mean, this does not reduce infertile women and single women to be a second class. And so if that is you here today, do not hear me saying that. But you would never say that a man lacks or struggling in his potential for pregnancy, right? You see, you see the problem. You see what I'm getting at there. That when we're talking about what it means to be a woman, we're talking about the potential for pregnancy there. You are a man, meaning meaning you have a male body with the potential for impregnation. And so the definition of manhood and womanhood talks about the potential for giving of life as well. Don't forget that as you pair it with your understanding of the image of God. And so I want to put this together, put this up on the screen. I'm going to give you my understanding based on Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28 of what a man and a woman is. You're asked that question, how, was, how would you define it? Here's, I, th I think we're using Bible here. A man is an adult human male made in the image of God. That's the other thing when I watched that documentary that I was like, that's missing. You must bring in the Christian aspect of this, that we are not just, we're not just like the animals. We have value according to how God has made us. We have the Imago Dei on us. And a woman is an adult human female made in the image of God. So unlike the world, the Christian takes his or her cue of what it means to be who we are according to God's good design. And God values the human body, and you and I should too. 
And I will have to tell you, and this is where you feel like it's becoming sermon now, here it is. So I will tell you, one of the things that I have noticed about Christians is that the way we talk about believing in Jesus Christ so that you can go to heaven when you die forgets everything that comes in between belief and actually dying. That we forget that our life with Jesus begins in the here and now. You are still in a human body. When you die and when Christ returns, you will have a human body. Once again, you will be raised on that last day. And I wonder if we have a sense of escapism about how we think about this rock that we're on. That we just want to get away from it. I, I think that can be a subtle thing that can infiltrate how we think about God's good creation. This is still good. The way you were made is still good. Don't forget that. We are created in God's image. And this is how he chose to do it. If you look at just Christ's own example, he comes bodily. He comes as a baby. He dies bodily. He is raised bodily. He ascends bodily. And he will return bodily. He's going to resurrect us all bodily as well. The physical body means so much to Jesus. He took one on himself. And so we who are created in the image of God look to Jesus who is the image of God. And we are conformed into his image. Jesus is the one who can exchange the scars of transgenderism for his scars that he won on the cross. And he is the one who will bear those scars for all eternity. While those who, who may have turned away from him and mutilated their own bodies. And yet if they turn back to him, they will only bear these scars on this side of heaven temporarily. The great news about Jesus Christ is that he has come to tell us that there is something better than what this world offers. This world offers only transition, but Jesus Christ offers transformation. Jesus is more interested not just in one part of who you are, your body. He's also interested in your soul. And he has come to seek and save that which is lost. And he knows that what you need is not just a cosmetic change merely, but you need a heart change ultimately. You need Jesus Christ alone. And so the great news that the Christian has, that the church has to offer, is that we can point beyond the silliness of what this world offers. And we can point to how Jesus looks at the whole person, body and spirit and soul. And he can deal with all of it. And so we need Jesus, his example, what he has done for us on the cross, and you can turn to him. That's, that's the good news of the gospel, not just for you and, you and I who may not deal with gender dysphoria, but the good news of the gospel is that it's capable of speaking to the person who does deal with these things. When I ask the question, how should you and I then respond? I think the first thing is this. Um, this morning might be very foreign to some of us. And I think we might be prone to joking because we don't know how to respond. This is typically where someone says, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And we all laugh and, and joke about that, right? I want to ask you a question. How does that actually help the person who's dealing with gender dysphoria or is de dealing with any of those other letters that, that we can mention? How does that help? I've heard one pastor say, I was, uh, I w I was, uh, I was, a man in a woman's body until I was born. And we might all jab each other and go, oh, that's funny, that's, that's joke, you know, and have a joke about that. But what does that actually accomplish aside from hurting our witness as Christians? Maybe we should not be mocking in response to the, yes, craziness of this culture, but we should be responding with truth and compassion by comparison. For parents, I want to just give this to you. Get this book, because the last, there's, there's several parts in here that talk about specific action steps that you can take. So that's a resource that we have for you. Uh, for parents, I, I want you to acknowledge something else too, that if you're not going to talk to your kids about this stuff, somebody else will. And they're either going to get it in the, by their friends, they're either going to get it as in the classroom, or they're going to get it online. Uh, I, I learned all about sex from my, my dumb friend when I was in fourth grade. That's just how it worked out, out for me. Mom, mom and dad didn't get that moment. That's how, that's how it happened, okay? Sorry, mom, if you ever watch this. I don't know if you know that. And so let us take care of our kids by us being the ones who stand in the gap. We cannot afford to not talk about this. We have to be the ones to talk about it. Because if we won't, someone else is going to disciple our kids. And we have to be the ones who stand up for truth. To our church members, let us elevate as well. 
and protect the family. Uh, I thought of Tristan and Emma Cardona when they did their baby dedication uh, about a month or two ago. That is an act of rebellion against this lost world. What a wonderful act it is. If you're parents or if you have a family member with transgender kids, I, I want to encourage you in this way. Consider also the environment that that person might be around. Um, one of the things that I've seen throughout all of this is that there's so many other factors that contribute to why someone says, I think this is what I need. Look, look at the underlying issues. Go deeper. And let me just also say a word. So if I've spoken to parents plenty here. Let me speak to our youth. If you're here, in here this morning, especially if you're in middle school, elementary school, even if you're in high school, and your mom and dad wanted you in here, they wanted you in here so you could hear this. You are not in the wrong body. You're in the body that your creator of the universe gave you. And you are fearfully and you are wonderfully made. And God knew exactly what he did when he made you. And he doesn't make mistakes. Okay? He doesn't make mistakes. And so you take your cue, not from what your, your friend might say, what this world might have to say. You take your cue from how God has made you. You take your cue from that. And then lastly, friends, would we also turn to the Lord and pray and say, Lord, would you change me and would you change this world around us? Because if you could transform my own wicked heart, you can be tra bring transformation even in this area. You can transform me even now as I may not know how to deal with all of this that has just been thrown at me this morning. But Lord, I know that you are sovereign and you're in control and you're going to come back one day and fix all of this. So I'm going to turn to you this morning. I believe that when we do that, we will be the kind of people who look like citizens that don't belong here, but citizens of heaven. And being citizens of heaven, we will be of much earthly use. If we stay true to God's word, let's pray. Thank you for listening to Bethesda Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can find us online by visiting our website at www.bethesdahuron.com. Or you can find us on Facebook and YouTube at Bethesda Huron.